Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey Pediocast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Chris Johnson. Chris, what's going on, man? Have you had a chance to uh, unwind and decompress a little bit after the trade done? Yeah, it's it's been a slower last week, uh, and it's funny how that's always just a crush that that time of year with responsibilities at work, obviously rumors and lots going on, and then now we get to find out uh, who who the winners and losers are, what what the real impactful moves were or weren't, and um, it's certainly been a little quieter week. I like it. So yeah, it's been nearly ten days or so now since the trade line passed, and. I haven't really personally had a chance to cover much on the PDO cast. I did a show with Shana Goldman and Andrew Berkshire the night of, and unfortunately we didn't record it properly. And so no one got to hear it. So um, all of our takes were uh, not able to be uncovered to the masses, but I thought it'd be fun to have you on to kind of discuss now that we have had a bit of time since then to, and the dust has settled for us to kind of just, you know, get into the behind the scenes machinations of it, kind of conversations that were being had, why teams, made the decisions they ultimately did. Cause I thought that was sort of the most, I mean, I guess you could say this for any year, but it felt like this year because of all the financial considerations, because of the upcoming expansion draft, because of all these sort of external factors, it felt like the, there was a handful of teams that were ultimately going for it and trying to acquire legitimate pieces to help them this year. And then because of that, cause there were so few teams, um, they kind of could go any number of directions to the way they ultimately went, I think was the most fascinating part beyond just the players they actually got. For sure. And, and, you know, the cap probably played more of a role this year than ever. I mean, we've got so many teams now having to use the long-term injury provision to, to just make their, their rosters work on a, a daily and nightly basis. And, you know, you saw teams like Vegas, you know, to name one, I think in, in all things being equal would have liked to have been more, uh, impactful than just getting Matthias Janmark at the deadline, but they just they they couldn't find a way to do it that made sense uh, because of their cap picture, and they were far from alone around the league. So it was it was definitely a different deadline. I think so many of us want to look at this season through a normal lens, you know what we're used to, but 
you know, a lot of what's happening is a little bit different because of the conditions we're in. And I think the deadline, you know, really uh, fell into that. So, yeah, I, I thought the most interesting subplot of the whole thing to me, no surprise, it was kind of the biggest uh, name brand player involved was Taylor Hall. But I thought that, uh, you know, just following along with the discourse online leading up to the trade deadline uh, and the way he was talked about and just sort of how he was valued as a player, I, I felt like I was so... Um, just not in sync with the way people were talking about him. Like I understood that he only had two goals at the time and pretty much everything had gone wrong in Buffalo, but um, it, the way he was being discussed about was kind of this like player, the teams almost were happy not to go and get for whatever reason. And, and, and I thought it was totally missing the boat of how productive of a player he could be. And so for me um, just sort of the, the market for Taylor Hall and, and the way he was being valued was I, I thought the most interesting part of uh, of the deadline. Well, it was shockingly low. I mean, I think that that's it's pretty easy for us to sit back now, kind of remove from it, and say uh, that the fact that there weren't more teams lining up to get him, that that Buffalo wasn't able to to you know harvest more assets in exchange for him than, than what they ultimately got from Boston and the deal they made. You know, there, there's a lot of pieces to this. You know, the the cap hit that was attached to him is is part of it. The fact that he had a no movement clause, and I think that there were certain places he didn't want to play, probably factored into it. It wasn't a true scenario where they could put him on the market and just sell him to the best bidder uh, because they had to work with Taylor and, and his representative in, in making this deal. But, you know, I think people are colored by the last year, and maybe they should be. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, at the time, Arizona made the deal for him. There was certainly a lot more interest that New Jersey received. They, they paid a premium. They got what they got out of him. Free agency comes and goes. He doesn't get the kind of contract there you expect. Tough year at the Sabres. And so he's kind of a declining stock in the way the market views him, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's any less effective of a player, especially put in the right circumstances. And so, you know, all that to say is I, I don't see how this isn't a win for Boston just because they really didn't give up a whole lot to get him. And, you know, we've already seen him score a couple goals for them since the trade. But even if that hadn't happened, I would say that, kind of the, the process for them. I mean, it, it almost seems like a no-brainer given uh, how many assets had to be uh, traded for for lesser players that moved at this deadline. Well, I'm really curious about the the reporting behind it because I feel like, um, you know, the opinion varies on it. From what I gather, um, the no-movement clause was obviously a factor, but I, I, I don't think that it necessarily actually precluded the Sabres from using other teams against each other to build up the asking price just because he only wanted to go to Boston. Like I think the market certainly shrunk on them, but it was because like, I think the Islanders are very interested in him, but then they went and paid a first for Kyle Palmieri and, and Travis Ajak. And that basically put them out of the running uh, the Leafs and the abs, which are two teams that have been linked to him in the past, even when he was a free agent in Colorado's case, I don't think we're genuinely that interested in him for whatever reason. And we can save that more when we talk about the Leafs, but the Vegas was the one team that I kept circling back to as a team that made sense in terms of them. Well, you know, you and I talked about in the preseason, like they are always looking to increase their risk profile in terms of trying to go for the highest uh, ceiling possible with their roster construction. And they certainly needed to do something to match what Colorado's done in terms of their roster, but they obviously couldn't make it work financially. I think the cap that you mentioned was huge there where they had to get a third team involved just to fit Matthias Janmark's deal on their books. And he only had 2.25 as a cap hit originally, I believe. So it felt like they were out of the running because of that. And so then you look around and Boston was really the only team left that had a need and a desire. And so I think that 
kind of played a bigger role in it than anything, which makes me feel like, I don't know how many teams were actually that interested in Taylor Hall. And that's why I, I framed it that way in the sense that I, I can't necessarily be mad at Buffalo for making the trade they did, because I feel like the NHL as a whole just didn't value him the way I think other people do uh, online. Yeah. And I think you've done a pretty good job there of, of representing what happened. I mean, my understanding is that you're right. It wasn't as though Buffalo came into this trade deadline a week out and, and Kevin Adams knew it, it was Boston or bust. They had to you know, get the best deal for there because that's the only place Taylor wanted to play. I think, you know, the message from, from Taylor and his representative was you go sur- survey the marketplace, let us know kind of what the options are and, and maybe we'll choose at the end. And, you know, I think he was inclined given the interest. I, mean, I, I think to be fair, he would have loved to go to the Island. If, if, if the Islanders had made the deal for Taylor Hall, a few days before the deadline, instead of getting Palmieri and, and Zajac, you know, I think he would have happily waived his, his no movement clause there. You know, I think there were players on that team that were reaching out to him that were saying they wanted him. Like there was definitely a potential fit there, but that door closes. And then you're right. Did the other sort of main buyers, if, if we want to call them that, are teams that were looking to really augment their forward group and had first round picks to trade, you know, the Leafs being primary among them, just, just Taylor Hall wasn't at the top of their wish list. And so when they went elsewhere, you know, Buffalo was kind of left to, to make the best deal they could. And, and ultimately, it's not a great deal, but I guess holding Taylor Hall pay, paying the full amount of his contract the rest of the season and not having a second round pick, um, you know, that would be a worse outcome, all things considered. So you're right. It's it's probably a case of this strange year too, but it, it's just kind of confusing or, you know, why more teams that have a chance to win wouldn't view him as an upgrade on what they have and and you know, especially if it was only going to take a second round pick or even a late first rounder. I mean, what's what's the true value of that, especially with the upcoming draft being such a crapshoot as it is? I mean, that that seems like a pretty low price to pay for for what Taylor Hall can still be. Well, that's why I found it head scratching and why I just didn't get the way he was being valued, because I wonder how many people actually watched him in Buffalo or even Arizona, right? Because it seems like, yeah, if you're expecting a former MVP and, and one of the leading scorers in the league. Yeah. You're probably not going to get that at this point. I, I thought it was very telling his comments about how like he just wanted to be one of the guys and he doesn't necessarily want to be the focal point. And he obviously gets to be that in Boston. But, you know, when you look at the additions, the Bruins made with him and Mike Riley without necessarily having to give up any top picks or prospects or even roster players that they truly valued. Um, I, I felt at the time that they were the team that improved the most at this deadline. And you know, we're only five games in. You don't want to necessarily draw any huge conclusions, but uh, they've looked pretty good. They outscored the Islanders and Capitals 13 to four in their three games between them. Rask is back now and playing well. And it feels like Taylor Hall is kind of giving them exactly what I think Taylor Hall believers thought he would give, which is that secondary scoring. He's playing with Krejci and Smith now, gotten that line going. Um, and so I just thought it was a no-brainer from from the Bruins' perspective. So maybe it was one of those situations where there's nothing to necessarily be that mad about. I'm sure that you know Sabres fans would have preferred to get a first-round pick, but um, just because of the way he was valued, I, I feel like for Boston, like they, they they came out of this looking really really good with him. They did, and and look, they have such a great top line. Of course, gotten tons of attention over the last number of years, but they have struggled to kind of get some secondary offense on their team, you know, just fit such a need. I like the Mike Riley acquisition as well. And he appears to have kind of slotted in nicely in, in their lineup too, with, with some of the injuries they have on the blue line and, and the like. And, 
you know, that's that's probably what a deadline should be, I, I suppose, is you're just looking for value and, and small upgrades. You know, if you're trading for a first line center at the deadline, you're probably not good enough. You know, you probably have larger issues that need to be addressed in other ways. Um, you know, and the, the thing with Taylor Hall I don't quite get is like what team around the league couldn't immediately put him in their top six and and realize some degree of uptick in their lineup. I mean, pretty much everyone. Um, and so I don't know if it's like, I hate to use the word character concerns or the fact that he hasn't played a lot of playoff games and that, you know, things haven't seemed to have gone his way. I mean, th- there's two ways of looking at that. I mean, I, I look at some of the organizations he's played for. I don't think he's been put in the best situations as a high end player, you know, with, in terms of the teams built around him, the infrastructure around him, you know, you, you put him in on the Bruins, which is a pretty established high-end organization, he doesn't have to be the guy. You're right. He can just fit in and do what he does well, and he, and he does it better than, you know, 90% of the league or higher uh, that play his position. Um, you know, he should have been more of a commodity. But I'm, I, I fall on this the same way you do. I'm, I'm not criticizing the Sabres. I don't, I don't think this was a GM overplaying his hand or misplaying his hand. I just think the marketplace uh, was not a good place to be a seller. And, and, you know, for whatever reason, Taylor Hall's you know, I think he's going to look, he's going to probably author a pretty big redemption story here. And, and all he has to do is just be himself and regress to the mean and be on a good team. And, and everyone's going to say, wow, why didn't this team and this team and this team go trade for him? The thing for me is I just feel like it's like a, a branding issue, right? Like, I, I feel like if you look at the league, it's one that value like falls all over them. So it's just drooling on players that are like role players who have a bit of skill, but can do all the little things. And that's like exactly what Taylor Hall is. Like he moves the puck up the ice. He's a great puck retriever. He gets the puck into dangerous areas. He's not going to score a ton of goals. I'm not expecting his shooting percentage to regress back to above league average, but he's also not a 2% shooter or whatever he was for the Sabres. And so you you see him with Krejci and Smith right now. It's it's exactly what you kind of expected. And, and I think it was so huge for them to get a guy who could move the puck up the ice and get into dangerous areas because the stat I kept citing was that they were 31st in terms of five on five high danger chance generation. And obviously it's been a much better since then. And, and I think it also unlocks options for them moving forward for the rest of the season as well, where they can kind of dial back the usage for their top line a little bit and preserve Marshine and Bergeron for the playoffs. They also, I think, have an interesting option in the back pocket of just playing Hall with Pasternak at some point and sort of trying to juice the shooting percentage that way because there's almost no one better in the league than Pasternak at it and get Taylor Hall just basically being like, the Zach Hyman version of just going and retrieving the puck and creating chaos and getting it to him in scoring areas. And so, um, yeah, I, I just think it's the dialogue around Taylor Hall was bizarre. And I wanted to talk about it a little bit here, but um, I don't know. Is there anything else on, on the Hall situation or the Bruins or should we move on to the next big topic? Yeah, there's not a whole lot. I mean, I, I'll finish with like you though. I, I don't get it. I think that, you know, people have, I, they're missing the boat on Taylor Hall. I think, you know, I, I don't understand where all the hate came from. There's so much on Twitter. I shouldn't read Twitter or judge anything based on that, but I, I just don't understand all these hot takes that, that he wasn't worth spending a draft pick on at the deadline. I mean, this guy could go down as one of the better deadline picks ever if, if Boston goes on a run here. Yep. Um, all right. The next big topic that I had was Steve Eiserman. And in classic fashion, he was very visibly involved. Uh, you know, we, we saw him at the start. He facilitated David Savard trade, gets a fourth out of that. Uh, he moved a couple of rental defensemen for mid-round picks, but then he was also lurking in the shadows and, and he pulled off arguably the biggest move, the deadline in the Vrana from Antha swap. And I don't know, were you hearing stuff about it? Cause I feel like just following along, 
um, I didn't even really hear a whisper of it until after the actual deadline itself passed. And, and it was like, wow, that was, that was such a, such a Steve Eisenman move kind of coming out of left field and making the biggest trade of the day after the deadlines actually passed. Yeah, that was a stealth trade. I mean, I think that there was a notion or I know there was a notion that, that Mantha maybe wasn't working out great with the Red Wings, that he wasn't totally happy and they weren't totally happy with things, but you know, that's not unusual. Look, that's a team that's done a lot of losing the last few years. It, it can be a tough spot. Uh, for someone like him who's getting, you know, to the midpoint of his career, you know, I didn't, I didn't translate some of those kind of conversations I've had in, in the last year to he's going to get traded at 2.59 Eastern time right before the deadline passes and, and what, you know, amounts to a modern day blockbuster. It's maybe not a traditional blockbuster, but certainly a significant trade with more to it than just, you know, a future asset for an expiring contract. Well, I'm always curious with those trades, how that comes together. It feels like, you know, on the surface, when I saw the details of the trade, it felt like, you know, from my perspective, um, both players obviously could benefit from, from a change of scenery, but, um, you know, and there's stuff involved in terms of uh, the Capitals wanting to get out from Richard Panic's contract, which they waived earlier and no, and no, buy, no takers. I think they certainly um, were dreading the idea of walking into arbitration with Jakob Vrana, considering um, the way he's been used. And I felt, I think the kind of feelings between the organization and him, but it feels like Iserman was able to squeeze extra value out of here with the draft picks because he had the leverage of not necessarily having to make a trade here, right? Like it's not like Mantha was an expiring contract or someone that they had to move right now, even if there were rumblings or they were underwhelmed with his play, he's still under contract for three more years after this one. Whereas the Capitals with the Vrana situation, but also with the timeline of trying to compete for a Stanley cup now, I think felt like more desperation to do something like that. So do you think that kind of explains it from, from that perspective of why maybe on the surface, it feels like the Capitals overpaid a little bit here for Manta, just because ultimately Iserman could easily walk away from this trade, not having to make anything if, if he felt like the price wasn't right. Exactly. I mean, if you're in Washington shoes right now, you, I mean, look, Alexander Ovechkin isn't even signed beyond the season. I'm, I'm not suggesting he's walking out the door, but I mean, you, you have a pretty clear and present idea that every year that your team is good could be the last year you have a true chance to win. And what they needed probably more than anything was a little bit of certainty and, and they couldn't have that in the Brandon situation. Cause you're right. It was setting up for a tough contract for them to negotiate after the season and they needed to get rid of some money. And, and so they could accomplish all of that in one trade while getting a player they like in Manta who's big and has some of those intangible assets that, that you're talking about teams valuing plus, you know, can, can put up some offensive numbers and, and all they had to do is trade away some draft picks and, and the draft picks right now, uh, for a team trying to win the cup are just not that important. And, and you know, I, I think that, you know, Detroit did a good job of, of using the leverage they did have by not being compelled, not being forced in any way, shape, or form to make this move, but being interested in taking on some extra salary and, and ridding them of kind of a contract headache and giving them at least a player that you could argue is equivalent. Uh, you know, in exchange for taking on those, the, the, you know, for taking those draft picks kind of as the price for all that. And so I think that's what makes it a compelling trade. It's, it's, you know, for by NHL standards, it's basically 3D chess of a trade. I, I don't think it's actually all that complex, but it's not, it's more complex, I think, than the typical NHL deal. And, and it does speak to where the teams are at. I mean, the Capitals reasonably, you know, they weren't going to go to Ottawa or, you know, any of the, the other teams that are way down that have tons of cap space and make this kind of move, I don't think. I just don't think those teams were in the market for that. Whereas Detroit was the rare team that had tons of cap space, was willing to take on salary to to extract some future assets and, you know, at the same time deal a player like Anthony Mantha, who's 
you know, he's had an impact. He's obviously been scoring a lot of goals since going to Washington, but I think, you know, he's someone that the, the Capitals could look at and say, wow, this guy might make us better today. And we get some more freedom uh, vis-a-vis the cap, you know, at, at this point in time. And all we have to do is get up those draft picks, sign me up. Yeah. Yeah. He's got the four goals in four games playing with Oshie and Backstrom looks good. I, I think he's one of those players where, I mean, obviously he had better defensive impacts than Brana, but just because he's so big and kind of lanky, he sometimes I, I think gets labeled as being lazy or, or not moving his feet enough when it's like, he's just a bigger player. And it kind of looks different than when a five, nine guy is working his ass off to cover the same ground as he is basically. So I, I think it's kind of a blessing and a curse for, for players like him. But, you know, from the Red Wings perspective here, that uh, flexibility with the cap is, is something that I keep coming back to where like, listen, they were historically bad last year. They're really bad this season. I think it's going to be a while before they're good again, but this is exactly what I want to see a rebuilding team doing, which is acquiring a bunch of assets. So they, they made 11 picks in 2019, 12 last year. They've got 12 picks this year. They've already got 10 for 2022. And I think financial flexibility is huge here where they currently have three capits on their books beyond next year. Dylan Larkin, 6.1 million, which is expiring that after that season. Richard Panic's 2.75 they acquired here, which is also expiring. And Justin Hadlocator's buyout. And that's it. And so um, obviously you like you need you need good players, but at the same time, I think for them, it's going to change with RFAs and ELCs coming up. But the point is they're maintaining that flexibility where if everything goes right in a couple of years, they're going to be able to nail the timeline where like those young players get paid and they're able to build around them as opposed to let's say a team like the Canucks right now, where it's like, okay, they need to pay Pedersen and Hughes, their two best young players, and they can't really supplement around them because of all the bad contracts they acquired along the way. And so for that, for the Red Wings, that's exactly what I like to see for a rebuilding team, which is uh, if you're going to be bad, at least have a purpose beyond, behind it, as opposed to just kind of middling along and having a bunch of old players taking up a bunch of cap space. Right, which is what's such a great spot for Steve Eisenman to be in. I mean, so few GMs could ever have kind of the the buy-in from their ownership or their fan base to to truly go down this road. I think um, you know there've been a couple over the years, but but very very few teams truly embrace the where they are at the way I think the Red Wings are, and it's smart. You know, they're not that far from becoming a good team, especially if they draft well and maybe get a little bit of luck with the the, the draft lottery and you know which they didn't get last year, but if they you know, draft first or second overall in the next few years, they're probably going to add some some more elite talent to the Moritz Siders and Lucas Raymonds and other players they already have. And and at the same time, they have a really crafty GM and and all these draft picks you're mentioning, I mean, look, those can become players for them. Those can become future assets for them to trade, you know, when they're on the upswing and, and starting to build towards a cup. I mean, I just think they're, they're starting to look, it's sort of like the incremental games theory, right? They're starting to do these little micro wins along the way. And yeah, they're a long way from, from being at the top of the standings, but all those wins start adding up and building momentum for your organization. And, and, you know, that's what I see them doing. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in Steve Eisenman as a general manager. I, you know, he stepped into a pretty good situation in Tampa, but he unquestionably made it better and found creative ways around the sort of the, the alleys he found himself in at times. And, you know, I suspect it won't be long really before we're talking with the Red Wings being a team to watch, being a team on the climb and, you know, potentially becoming one of the best teams in the league again. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the, the small wins versus big wins. Like I, I feel like, um, just making yourself available to capitalize on the big wins along the way is, is such a, uh, underrated aspect of this where, 
um, you know, you can kind of keep your door open to pounce on opportunities like this brand of Ramantha swap where you can get extra picks and maybe a higher upside younger player. Uh, whereas teams are so often like locking themselves in, into situations where it's like they need the best uh, best case scenario possible to come through for them to actually uh, succeed. So yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. Um, and let's highlight one other thing, because I think yeah. what's interesting in that David Savard deal where Detroit was the pass through is that, yes, they take on the the half retention of the half, basically 25% of his salary in, in flipping him to, to Tampa, but they also traded an AHL player to Tampa, which basically offsets the actual amount of money being spent and Tampa loaned that player back to Grand Rapids, meaning they didn't actually, they're not even spending much more money. Like it's, it's a negligible amount of money. They basically just, you know, laundered this, this player through their situation, didn't change anything about their farm team, didn't end up spending any more money and added a fourth round pick. I mean, it, look, a fourth round pick is nothing more than a lottery pick, but that, that's, that's smart business. We've heard tons of speculation about this stuff happening in the past. This is the first real deadline where it became, you know, multiple teams did stuff like this, but, you know, I think that it's smart moves like that, that, that probably go under the radar, but the Red Wings didn't even take on more salary while doing all this. I love it. Um, okay. So let's do the Leafs. Leafs are next on my list here. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of us for saving them till third. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, restraint. Yes. Um, so I wanted to get into kind of the motivation for them of identifying Nick Foligno as their big target at the deadline and paying uh, what I think we can agree is a premium price to get him in a first and two fourths, uh, obviously at 25% of, of his cap hit. Um, and I guess we can lump the third that they gave up for David Riddick and the fifth for Ben Hutton as well into this and sort of the idea of them going quote unquote all in at this deadline and basically, uh, you know, giving away all of their draft capital for this coming draft. Um, I don't know what, what's the entry point for us in this conversation in terms of like, just why they did what they did. Um, it's kind of what the, what the process was there because, you know, on the surface, it would seem like there were other ways they could have gone, but they clearly um, were pretty proactive in terms of identifying Felino as the guy they wanted to add. Well, for sure. They could have got Taylor Hall for less than probably than what they, they paid here, or at least if they had a similar offer to Buffalo on the table, I imagine it happens, uh, you know, with, with Taylor Hall. So at minimum, we can say they chose Nick Foligno over Taylor Hall, and and there are other players on the market that that we could lump into that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of ways to go. I, I think that it marks an evolution in their thought process on team building, which you know has been underway, in my opinion. Uh, you know, since before this season, with some of the moves they made in the off season, you know, some of it was cap related, but trading away Kasperi Kapanen and Andreas Janssen and trying to add sort of different types of players, not just having sort of pure offensive players on their third line. Uh, and and sort of playing in their bottom six, you know. Obviously, with Nick Foligno, they've they value some of the things that that don't relate to his ability to produce offense. Um, you know, at this stage in his career, I don't think anyone expects him to to really produce much offense. Frankly, it hasn't been there. Um, but you know, he, he kills penalties. He's obviously can can play physically. I think he can be a net front guy for you. He can forecheck and do some things that that they think maybe can can help some of their more skilled players. And and you know, clearly they've got him here with the playoffs in mind. I mean, he's, he's just now joining the team out of quarantine. They've got 10 games left in the regular season. So they're really not going to get much out of him by the time he's comfortable and integrated in the lineup uh, in the regular season. This was all about, you know, being a better team in the playoffs. And, and, you know, part of me wonders, and I don't truly have an answer to it is how much of just watching him play them last year in the bubble, you know, 
put him to the top of the list. Um, you know, again, in the, in the context, there's only so many forwards that were available. It's not that they could go trade, pick any guy around the league they wanted to acquire. They're, they're dealing with what was available, but they, they certainly prioritized Nick Foligno and, and they were fairly aggressive in going and getting him. Yeah. Well, okay. So I guess on the one hand, I think it's important to note that, you know, they didn't subtract anyone from their roster, like we were saying with, with the Bruins and Hall, um, you know, they didn't part with, I think they clearly covet a, a number of their prospects they already have in house and they didn't have to give up any of them. And I, th- I feel like they valued that more over the draft picks. And I think they certainly feel like they'll be able to uncover talent at this draft and moving forward, whether it's through European free agents like they've done in the past, or whether it's jumping back into the draft at some point or, or using later picks uh, to kind of creatively find talent. And, and I think they're right to, to believe they can do so given their resources and the staff they have and what they've shown us over the years. Um, I guess the question for me is like, it's indisputable that on paper, they got better, right? Cause they basically just added without necessarily taking anything off of their roster. The question is, did they get, did they optimize the way they got better in terms of their approach and, and what they could have done, right? Cause it's not necessarily the value of first versus Felino to them. It's the value of Felino versus someone else like a Taylor Hall, they could have gotten an approach. Then I think that's the most fascinating uh, component to this for me in terms of the process, because I think you you hit the nail on the head there where it's, you know, I think they, just because of the past, there is baggage involved. And I think they do want to be able to um, have more versatility in terms of the ways they can play based on the, the game state or the score. Um, I think just because of some of the past playoff outcomes, they have an added incentive to get better at putting the clamps on teams late in games and limiting the events and feeling safe and confident in their leads that they might have late in games. And uh, so I I think that was sort of the biggest motivational factor driving force here, right? It's, it's adding a guy like Felino who they can play with uh, Nylander and Tavares at the start of games, if they want to, as their winger, who can kind of create havoc around the net and create open more space for them. But then late in games, if they need to preserve a lead, they can potentially play Felino with, let's say, Mikheyev and Engvall or something like that and have this more sort of defensively oriented buzzsaw line that keeps the puck uh, in the other half of the ice. And, and so uh, I, I think it's dangerous to overrate a player like Felino in terms of the leadership and, and the toughness and stuff like that. But I think functionally on the ice, I can sort of see the logic in terms of why they identified him as a player that unlocks different ways for them to play depending on the opponent and the score. Right. And, and so I think if we're evaluating the move in the context of the moment, it's really Felino versus Palmieri versus Hall. Because those were the, the three players, essentially, they could have got for similar type of asset package. I don't think Palmieri wanted to come to Canada and, and he did have a limited no trade clause. So, I mean, he might not have truly been available to them. I know they certainly had interest in him. You know, Hall, they, I'm, I'm comfortable saying they could have made happen if they wanted to in Felino. You know, they, they checked in on Connor Garland, Michael Granlin, you know, ultimately those players weren't traded. So, you know, that, that was a decision that ends up being made. And, and so that's, it's almost, especially when we talk about the forwards or the, their kind of their process of this deadline, that that's how it has to be evaluated, in my opinion. Um, you know, I'm with you. They, they, they've seen Sheldon Keefe has really wanted to have a more defensive line, you know, kind of a third line. It hasn't really manifested itself this year, partly because of injuries and things that they've they've dealt with. It's been kind of a strange year, but right from the start of camp, he, you know, he was trying to create a line at that time. He had uh, Hyman, Mikheyev, and uh, Kerfoot as his third line, and, and his idea was to match them up against other teams' best 
again, that, that line never really got a lot of run. But I do wonder, it's complicated because Hyman's just gone out in, injured as we're reporting this, you know, recording this rather for a couple of weeks. But, you know, if they ever do truly get healthy with Felino in there, maybe with a Riley Nash, I wonder if come playoff time, we see them have a very traditional kind of checking line that isn't counted on to, to deliver much offensively, but can stifle the other team. And maybe that's, you know, where they see Felino fitting. I mean, it, it's an interesting set of decisions. I mean, the problem you have to be feeling right now, if you're in the Leafs front office or in the coaching office, coaching office is that, you know, do they have enough in goal? I mean, all these plans and everything, you know, could be undone by their goaltending situation, which isn't, you know, it's an analytical podcast like this one. It's not, not too exciting, but it's just the truth. I mean, you, you make th- these set of decisions and if you don't get enough saves, I mean, it might all be for naught anyway. Yeah. I'd say that about pretty much every team other than maybe the lightning with Vasilevsky though. Right. Like, I guess like with Vegas, you can maybe say like, okay, well, if Flurry or Leonard falters, you have the other one and, and, and you can feel relatively confident in them. But for the most part, like there's only so much you can do in terms of ensuring that you're going to have the goaltending because especially over a seven game series, any of these guys basically can wind up looking terrible and we can wind up micro analyzing their performance in it. So I, I, I don't, in terms of the list of issues, like it's obviously a huge one because it's the most valuable position, but it's also the one I feel least confident in saying with certainty, whether it is a problem or whether it's actually a strength. Cause all of a sudden all let Anderson can come back and they could have three guys who are playing well. And then it's like, wow, they have so many options. And, and it, you right. know, it was only what a week or 10 days ago that we were talking about Jack Campbell as being uh, in, in, incapable of losing games and stopping everything. And so that's just kind of the nature of the position. Or you could have Ben Bishop and he could go down injured and Anton Kudobin could take you to the cup final. Exactly. So, yeah. You, know, it's, you make a good point there. I don't want to be a prisoner of the moment. Well, okay. So on, on, on that sort of wavelength um i'm not sure how much do you think of the motivation here was the obviously the unique circumstances of this season where they're in this north division and they don't have to play a tampa bay or you know any of these other teams that they might have otherwise in the past in the earlier rounds and they feel like they have an easier path towards the top four or in the final four and also how much of it is that past baggage of um you know i think we can agree that They've, their process has been sound. They've added a ton of talent over the past four or five years. If you look at where the roster is now compared to where it was when they inherited it, uh, in terms of this front office, it's significantly better. And I think there's pretty much any franchise would love to be in the position they're in in terms of the players they have, but because they have no playoff success to show for it and because we are prisoners of the moment and we evaluate this stuff based on how far you make it in the playoffs, um, there's obviously, I, I think, an added motivation for them to feel like they can't really afford to have another super premature high profile playoff exit where they're out in round one and we're spending the entire off season wondering where things went wrong. Yeah. You know, I, I, I look this year for them, I think every year is going to be, they'll view it as critical essentially at this point, because every year they got a chance to win. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that next year they won't have a better chance they might, but you know, when they were, when they approached this trade deadline, what they'd seen 40 games, give or take in the North division. Uh, I think most people would say they were the best team in the division at that point in time. They probably still are. And, you know, you have this playoff structure where, you know, they have an ability to to play through the division into the third round. I mean, why wouldn't you conclude that this was a great year to, to try to maximize, maximize every effort you have to to have that run at it, especially knowing in the back of your mind, you're right. We, we still don't know for sure if the, the Atlantic division will be rebuilt in time for next season. A lot of that hinges on, you know, the Canadian border issue. And if, 
you know, if we're in a spot where Canadian American teams can travel freely back and forth across the border come next season, I, I still think that there's still an outside chance that we see some version of the North division next year, just because of the COVID uh, pandemic. But that, that issue aside, I think that they, they are living in the moment. They, they, they see an opportunity and the, the crazy, the crazy thing that'll happen here is if they lose in the first round, there will be legitimate pressure, I think, to, to fire, to make changes in the front office. And I think that would be absolutely insane myself, but I, I can already see how it's setting up and, and the conversation's going. And so, yeah, if you're in Kyle Dubas' seat, I think for all kinds of reasons, you're motivated to give this group the best chance for success now because he can't count on his own future necessarily if things go awry and because there is clear opportunity there. And I, you know, I still think they're well positioned in, in the division, but you know, because it's an unusual year, man, like you don't get these rental players for too long and you're dealing with a lot more unknowns in terms of trying to, to get everyone acclimated and playing for you, uh, you know, in, in short period of time. I mean, the first round of the playoffs will be over in like five weeks from now. It's crazy. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's crazy to me, just the moving of the goalposts, because like, not that I agree with it, but I, I get if you lose early in the playoffs and, and you're all in on skill, I, I understand where you can kind of quibble with that. But then if you just look at their most recent moves where they go and they get Brody and, you know, they add Bogosian and they add Joe Thornton and they add Wayne Simmons and now they trade for Nick Foligno. And, and then if they lose early, I'm just very curious, like what the argument is going to be next. They, they went too far in this direction. Like, I don't understand. You, you, you can't win with people sometimes in terms of their expectations. And I don't know, it's it just crazy to me that this is even a topic, but it, it is a real one. I don't think we're making like something out of nothing because it, it, it's a real thing in my opinion. Well, sports, I, I think more mistakes are made in pro sports because of impatience than anything else. I mean, it's it's really boring to say, but the best thing you could do is give them like five years from today, let them try it and, and rejig their approach and keep going and keep going. And it just might take some luck going their way or whatever at some point. But also, you know, just because they don't get past the first round, I, I still don't think it's an indictment on the decision-making process that's been made inside the organization. And I know how that'll sound to like the old school kind of like hot take newspaper columnist that someone's got to be held to account and all this stuff. But I mean, let's be real here. Um, you know, they still have a great chance to win. I mean, Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner are 23, I believe right now. Marner might be turning 24 soon, but I mean, they're still right at that point where their best players are just entering kind of their primes statistically and, you know, we've seen Sidney Crosby win Stanley Cups at 30 and 31 and what have you. So it, to me, I, I think it's crazy to to say it has to happen right here, right now. Um, because, yeah, it's. I think we're going to be on the same page here. I just, it, it's, it's nuts. Like, it's Recognize employees with Custom Inc. Show customer appreciation with Custom Inc. Outfit your teams with Custom Inc. Easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at custominc.com. Make Custom Inc. your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at customink.com. Hard to It's hard to really poke holes in, in what they've done, honestly. It's not to say they built a perfect team, but given their circumstances, they've consistently found ways to make improvements. If you look at the underlying you know, shots against, chances against this year. I mean, they, they've clearly made stark improvements in, in the way that they play and, and how much they give up defensively. Uh, some of that probably is on rebuilding the blue line. Some of it maybe is on greater commitment, coaching, 
impacts from Sheldon Keefe getting a full season. I mean, they're they're moving in the right direction. It's just who can predict for, with certainty that it's going to, you know, bear the fruit that they want in the next few weeks. Yeah. All right. Let's take a quick break here, CJ, and then we're going to finish up this conversation. All right. Um, a team that I had here listed that I wanted to talk about was the Columbus Blue Jackets because they obviously wound up being the big seller at the deadline in terms of landing two first this year and a third and a fourth next year for Nick Foligno and David Savard. And I think we both agree that you know those are pretty good values for them considering they're both guys in their 30s that are both on expiring contracts. And it sounds like Foligno might even be back with them uh, this offseason. And it's basically the exact opposite of where they were at two years ago organizationally where they gave up all of these assets to get Matt Duchesne and Ryan Dezingle. And even like, I remember that, I kind of forgot, but they like gave up a fourth and a seventh or whatever for like Adam McQuaid and Keith Kincaid, just because they were like, you know what, screw it. We're just, we're just going all in on this year. We're going to try to win a playoff series for the first time in our organization's history. And they did. And uh, obviously in glorious fashion and sweeping the Tampa Bay lightning. And so I think it was, uh, you know, obviously a success story for them, but this year, you know, when I, when I kind of, kind of, think ahead in terms of, cause I wanted to ask you for off season topics like teams to watch or what we should be kind of trying to project ahead. And they're one of the most sort of fascinating crossroads teams for me here because they've had such a horrific season, but they also have so many, um, you know, big name premium assets or decisions that they're going to have to make as an organization from their coach to Patrick Lina as a restricted free agent to Seth Jones, who will be entering his final year of his deal and will be a, a UFA after, uh, you know, even their goalies, but they just, they're going to have so much cap space. I don't know. Like it just seems like they're going to be a team that uh, we're going to be sort of come the off season, really focusing on because it feels like they're going to be a, a swing team in terms of if they get super aggressive and make a bunch of bold decisions, they're going to be involved in a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And I, I don't see a set of circumstances where they aren't aggressive, honestly. I mean, you know, Yarmo Kekalainen showed at that deadline you're referencing two years ago that he's not afraid of that. He's He's been at the helm of the organization for a long time. You know, for a number of reasons, this season's gone off the rails for them. I, I don't I don't think they were planning on, or, or you, not planning's the wrong way to put it. I don't think they would have envisioned this kind of an outcome for their season. Um, but it all kind of blew up in their face. They made some, they, they got rid of some depth players, in the offseason, I think to guard themselves against the possibility of a Pierre Luc Dubois offer sheet, you know, they end up signing Dubois at a time when he's, you know, asked for a trade. They make the Dubois line A deal. You know, they make the Anderson trade for for Max Domi, and that really hasn't worked out too well. You know, they, they've just kind of been bleeding a little bit uh, some talent. And and, you know, at the same time, they're coming to a crossroads with their coach John Tortorella, who, you know, at the it appears to me anyway that he's unlikely to be back next season given that he's playing out his deal as well and there seems to be some indication he might not even want to be back that maybe it's just a, a time for a mutual parting of the ways so you're right this feels like a massive inflection point um, because I believe in addition to Seth Jones Zach Kerensky is entering the last year of his contract so there's a decision to be made on his extension along with figuring out the Jones along with figuring out line a and a head coach and they have all these draft picks I mean they 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 can go in any number of directions, and so, you know, if if we count cap space as sort of freedom to do things, you know, no one other than Seattle Kraken will have more freedom to do things this this off season. And I just think, given the GM's track record and the way they've got here, that that, you know, I expect them to be in the middle of a lot, be it signing free agents, making impact trades, you know, perhaps changing kind of the shape of their organization with a new head coach. I mean, it, it's 
that and and you know I look at Edmonton, I look at Philadelphia as other places that I think will have pretty active off seasons. Um, you know, it's it's actually going to be I think a pretty compelling summer for for those that are into the transaction game, which everyone is obviously. Yeah, no, they've got I think like. 50-ish million or so in terms of cap commitments, um, not including their, their RFAs, of course. They've got three firsts. They've got a GM who you mentioned, Yarmo, being aggressive. I also feel like in terms of like the power he holds organizationally and sort of how uh, how long of a leash he has, like it's right up there with pretty much any GM in the league, I feel like, in terms of him being able to do what he wants. And yeah, there's, there's some big decisions. I mean, it's funny you mentioned John Tortorella and how he might not be back. Like, this is the ultimate playing out the string of a season. It's like, just, it's it's one thing to be bad. I think it's another, like, it's been such a, a, a dramatic sort of sideshow in terms of all the benchings and scrat and healthy scratches and everything. Like, it, it's it's so clear. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lost season for them, obviously, but I think people would be surprised to see, like, how much of a lost season it is because... I guess the Columbus Blue Jackets just aren't getting a lot of national attention, but they have the same number of points and goal differential as the Detroit Red Wings this year. Like no team in the league has a worse expected goal share in all situations than them. Like they've been truly horrible and not that they have a super talented roster and they certainly have bled a lot of talent over the past however many months, but like it's clear that they should be better than they have been. And so I think they're going to get up to a lot of stuff. So I kind of just wanted to highlight them because when we're talking about the trade deadline, like they obviously got the biggest uh, pieces back in return in terms of future assets. And so I wanted to highlight them, but yeah, I remember you, you, so you mentioned the Oilers there, you were tweeting, I feel like at the time of the deadline where I think people were disappointed that the Oilers sort of stood pad and basically only traded for Dmitry Kulikov. And I think it was a, you that tweeted that you're expecting them to be uh, based on Ken Holland's sort of breadcrumbs. He laid pretty, uh, pretty active this coming off season. Yeah, because they have contracts coming up off the books or or decisions to be made. You know, I, I don't think that the Ryan Nugent Hopkins decision is 100% made one way or another, but he's an impending unrestricted free agent who's had discussions on an extension with the organization. But obviously, that's either six, six and a half million dollars walking out the door that they can spend somewhere else or or they'll make a commitment to him. They have the defensemen. You know, they, they just, they have more freedom, I think, to to be aggressive than they felt they had in the past. I mean, ultimately they, they trade for Dmitry Kulikov at the deadline, but I think that they, they see some more needs on their team, but they just felt that they were hamstrung by their cap position, that they couldn't really get at what they want to do, which is I think rebuilding a second line essentially um, among other things. Uh, but in also getting a goaltender, uh, you know, younger goaltender, I think to, to secure things will, will be on their wish list, but you know, I just know that they're gearing up to have this be a big summer. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, look, you, you, you have the keys to Connor McDavid and, and Leon Dreisaitl and, you know, they're absolutely torching the North division this year, probably to no one's surprise. I think we actually might've predicted that when we did our preseason pod that this would be. Yeah. You and I, by Connor's you and I went off the, off the board a little bit and said that Connor McDavid was going to be good this year. So, um, you heard it here first in the PDO cast. Yeah, we really staked our our claim to that. I mean, I'm I'm kind of cheering for him. Cheering being the wrong word, but like to see him get 100 points. I just think that would be insane in this kind of season. And he's got an outside chance at it. Either way, ridiculous season. So, anyway, you know, if you've inherited him as Ken Holland has, you know, there's pressure to to build a better team around him. I know people want to see more at the deadline. They didn't do a lot. I think this is this is the big summer. This is this is the true test of what you have in that management group because they, they do finally have the ability to do some things. And I think, as I say, that I see a fair bit of player movement coming this summer. 
league-wide. You know, I think that's a natural extension of an expansion draft and that's sort of the cap squeeze that's on league-wide. And so I think Edmonton will be a, a major player there. And as I mentioned, Philadelphia is another one. I just think after this season and given that organization and Chuck Fletcher, I, you know, I think that they'll be swinging big too. Yeah, I guess one last thing on the Oilers is like, on the one hand, I, I commend, um, you know, not boxing yourself into a corner in terms of taking a patient team building approach because you do have McDavid and Dreisaitl under contract for the next four seasons after this one, uh, Connor for another one after that, I believe. But um, at the same time, like with the level they're playing at, I just, I, I felt like there was probably a, a more middle ground way in terms of improving their need, at, uh, improving their team at least a little bit without sacrificing the future because they're playing at such a supreme level and you see like over the past two games, I think Dreisaitl played 27 minutes in, in one of them. And then McDavid played 27 the other night against, against the, uh, the Habs. And so you've basically got them on the ice for half the game and they're dominating when they're out there, uh, whether they're playing together or separately. And so I would have liked to see them be a bit more aggressive. I, I similarly feel the way that way about the jets where, uh, the, they're a flawed team, no doubt, but they have Connor Hallibuck playing at a supremely high level and, they have a great power play and they have players who can score off the rush and Connor and Ehlers and Shifley. And so I would have liked to see them add something, but it, it did seem like Shevel Dayoff was kind of disappointed in, in, in not being able to do so. It seems like it wasn't a lack of effort. Just there wasn't necessarily anything available that, that, that moved the needle. I know uh, Elliot's been sort of linking Jamie Alexiak to them, but um, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Other than Jordy Ben, which I guess was their big move. Like I, I would have liked to see them, uh, address that need as well, but it's always tough to evaluate this stuff without necessarily knowing like what potential offers they sort of walked away from. Right. Right. And I think they were kicking around on Josh Manson, you know, in the early days and we thought Matthias Echo might move before this deadline. I think the jets were, were certainly in there. You know, I think that they were around David Savard too. They certainly scouted him pretty heavily before the trade to Tampa. So, you know, they, they were looking at the market. I think Winnipeg's in a really interesting spot because I'm with you. All things being equal, you want to see that team be aggressive because, you know, they've got a pretty decent core, but but could could use a little bit of help. You know, I, I think for them, they don't part with the draft picks quite as easily just because they feel like their market brings certain challenges that, you know, obviously, I don't think we're going to ever imagine them being a big player in free agency that they feel they really have to build things from the ground up internally. And, and so, you know, I think in some ways that that inhibits them when they come to these sort of decisions at times, although they have traded first in the past. We saw them get Stastny and Kevin Hayes didn't work out in the Hayes case, but you know, they have been aggressive at past deadlines that I think that they're more conservative by nature. Um, but I'm with you. I, the same reason the Leafs look at the North division and think, Hey, that's a great time to take a swing. I, if I was in Edmonton or Winnipeg, I'd, I'd feel the same way. I mean, you know, th- there's not, there's not one King in this division. Uh, the Leafs have been at the top of it for most of the season, but, but, there's flaws there too. And, and, you know, you're talking about trying to beat them in a best of seven at some point. So, you know, it did feel like there was maybe a little something left on the table here, but also those GMs I'm sure were twisting themselves in knots about quarantines and everything. And, and, you know, maybe rightly or wrongly, I don't, I'm not sure on that one. The, uh, another team that was kind of patient, um, didn't really do much, right. They, they brought in, uh, Jonas Johansson a couple of weeks ago, they brought in Devin Dubnik uh, more recently, and then they brought in Brock back Carl Soderberg. But the, I'm always fascinated with, with the abs because in terms, we're always looking at teams in terms of like the blueprint they're, they're laying for the rest of the league. Uh, like, especially when you have success, other teams are paying attention. Oh, what can we take from them? What are they doing well that we can incorporate? And their sort of um, reluctance to take on future money and, and commitments. And understandably so given that, 
you know, they're going to have to pay McCarr here soon. Landis Cog as well. McKinnon is on like one of the most team friendly deals in the league for a star and, and he'll uh, get an uh, exorbitant uh, pay raise soon as well. Um, you know, it, it was last deadline. I remember they were linked to like Chris Kreider and then this deadline or in the off season, it was Taylor Hall. And then this deadline, it was like, Oh, like, could we see them be aggressive and think outside the box and add some a big name player? And it's understandable that they're very content with what they have. Their, their big move was bringing in Devon Taves at, at, uh, during last offseason. And we kind of saw exactly why they're going about this team-building approach, which was they had the cap space to go and get him from a team that didn't. They had the draft capital in the two seconds they could give for Taves and then sign him to an extension. And now he's a rock star on their team as a number one defenseman. That's like, might even be their third best guy. And so uh, for teams that are looking around the league, I, I always look at them as like the patience of their approach, but also uh, with a specific plan. They're not just necessarily not doing anything, but they're doing it for a reason. And I, I think it's admirable the way they're kind of going about their business. Yeah. And they're actually one of the teams they, they now have kind of an interesting expansion decision because, you know, Taves, has to be protected. Uh, you know, you got Eric Johnson's got his no move, Gerard, McCarr, you know, the, the, and Graves as well. I, I'm not sure. It seems evident unless there's another side trade made that they're going to lose one of those defensemen uh, to Seattle in the expansion process one way or another. And I'm with you. You know, they 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 maybe don't do the obvious thing or, or what everyone's screaming about, but it doesn't mean they're doing it wrong. And, you know, it's hard to argue their underlying numbers this season, the, the, the way – it looks like they can go for it. And I suppose, you know, the one thing people probably will ask about them is their goaltending. We won't go too deep into that as, as we touched on earlier that, that they're far from alone in, in that regard. But, you know, it's it's hard to argue with the team they've built. And and I think that they're smart to preserve as much freedom as they have with, with the contracts they have coming. I mean, that that's what every smart team always has to be balancing is, is what you can add for today, but then what it means for, for tomorrow. And, and certainly with Landis Cog and McCarr and not too far in the, the distance McKinnon, you know, they're going to have to take about some pretty hefty contracts just to, to keep the, the core of this team together. Um, do you know off the top of your head, how many cap dollars cap friendly currently has the Tampa Bay lightning at as a, as a team? I think it was around 99 million last night. Yeah, it is. <laughs> So That's a good. lot. So good. Um, I don't mind this. You know, I get why everyone out there has got their flashlights out and conspiracy theory hats on. But, you know, if you have such a oppressive system, as frankly this is, with the, with the hard salary cap in the league and this moment in time where the cap basically isn't going up for years in the future, most likely, um, you know, I think it demands a little bit of, creativity or or ingenuity or whatever we want to call it and look all these teams are trying to win within certain parameters i i recognize it's not a true salary cap the way the lightning are doing business but i say good on them i know that nhl central registry has got all the forensics files out right now and, and letting everyone know that they're going to look at injury timelines and this and that and and you know they're doing their job too but you know i i think that it was when you got 31 teams competing for one championship and soon to be 32, you know, you're going to have to stretch the margins to, to give yourself the best chance to win it. Oh, I'm always, I'm always all for it. Like if, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. And, and I, I, you know, the smart organizations are always trying to, trying to push the envelope and, and while they can get away with it, they should. I, I am curious, um, you know, when, when Stamkos was kind of ruled out for an extended period of time here, 
uh, you know, the, the conspiracy theorists that put their hats on. They were like, oh, here comes Nikita Kucherov uh, kind of flying into the ring, like staying. But I really, I don't know. Don't you feel like, and I know you've been on this talking about how like the league is, is watching very closely. I feel like they're going to be a bit more careful in terms of the optics of when Kucherov comes back. I, I would be surprised if, if it was right now, although um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how I feel about it because I, I was talking about this with someone um, in the league recently, but while I'm all for the, uh, the cap gymnastics, it, there is a weird human element of like, everyone is trying to obviously add to their teams uh, with the vision of having the best roster possible come the postseason, Right. And there's a weird element of like a player might be out and then you're essentially in a way sort of rooting for them to be out for longer so that you can add someone in the meantime and then they can come back. And as opposed to just, you know, if they're ready to go, let's bring them back. It's more so like, Oh, how can we put all of these pieces together so that we can kind of have our cake and eat it too? Yeah. And it, it's, it's not pleasant. I mean, I don't know how it's gone in each of these cases. And I, I should say, like, I don't, I think that there's a little bit less shenanigans and everyone thinks like everyone thinks there's like a master plan for every one of these injured players. And the team knows exactly on May 12th that he'll be ready. Or, you know, I, I don't know that it's, I don't think it's all just a giant scam the way that it kind of plays out on hockey Twitter, but, but certainly I think that there's some cases where it's gray and, you know, certain players might be told basically we can't activate you before the playoffs because of this reason. And yeah, it's, it's probably not pleasant, but I don't you're know. Incent- you're incentivized to do so. You are. And there's lots about this business. That's unpleasant. If we're going to be honest, if we're going to yeah. pick up the rock and really look under it, there's a lot of aspects of pro sport that are a little bit unsavory and this is just comes with the territory. If you win a Stanley cup, it's, it's worth doing so. And I think even for the players, maybe that are put in strange situations, you get your name engraved on that. You get your share of the, the playoff pool, uh, bonus money. I don't know. It's probably worth it in the long run for you too. If, if that's how it plays out. All right. Well, I think that's kind of all I've got in terms of like big deadline topics. Was there anything else in your mind? Like uh, we can, we still got a bit of time here if, if you want to, uh, if there's anything else you wanted to touch on or anything you found found interesting either in the days leading up to it or the actual deadline itself, was there anything you can kind of tell us in terms of like, uh, you know, something you were working on or tracking on a lead and, and it was close, but it never wound up materializing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's come out a little bit more since, but I thought the Ryan gets stuff was interesting at the deadline just because there was definitely interest in him and he had interest in going to Vegas specifically in terms of waving his no move clause and, and they couldn't make that happen. But you know, Montreal asked about him trying to to maybe get back Getzlaff and Perry on the, on the same team, which kind of just for sentimental, crazy reasons would have been interesting. Um, you know, I, I do think it was probably a quiet deadline in the end. Uh, I don't think that there was as much that got scuttled at the two-yard line as, as typically happens for, you know, reasons you really touched on off the top as it just was a strange year. Not everybody was in a position to go for it or 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 be in the marketplace in a meaningful way. You know, I think such that we would normally see in, in a typical year. Um, but, you know, we still got a few fireworks. It wasn't all wasted day. And thankfully at Sportsnet, we were only on the air for five hours instead of nine or whatever it was supposed to be originally. I like it. All right. Well, CJ, this was a blast, man. I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. I'm glad you survived the deadline. And 
Yeah, looking forward to. I think it's going to be a fun offseason, as, as you alluded to, with uh, you know teams like the Oilers and the Flyers and, and whatnot. We didn't even really talk about the Hurricanes much, but you know with them, they've got Svechnikov as an RFA. They've got Dougie Hamilton as uh, probably like the top UFA that's going to be available, and and so they're going to. You know, I, I think it'll depend on how the rest of the season goes for them, but I imagine they'll be pretty involved as well. And they're obviously always looking for ways they can improve their team. So um, I, I think we're going to see a lot of activity, hopefully this offseason that'll make up for this deadline. And uh, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it and, and looking forward to having you back on the show to to uh, dissect all of it. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I think the playoffs should be good too. I'm, I'm actually oddly pumped to see the third round when, when everyone plays each other for the first time in the year. And we see how that kind of plays out. Um, but, you know, I, I've, I've enjoyed the hockey, all things considered, this year. It's still weird without having fans in a meaningful way, challenging in a lot of ways for my job. But uh, I'm glad they're playing. And let's hope we get a good good playoff run before Seattle craziness starts in July. All right, man. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Take care of yourself. And we'll uh, chat sometime soon down the road. Thanks, Dimitri. All right, that's going to be it for today's episode of the Hockey PDO Cast. Uh, I know we were a bit late with the uh, trade deadline analysis pod, but I wanted to at least sort of get to it eventually. And, and I thought that, um, you know, it was fun to have CJ on and sort of reflect on it and uh, discuss some of the logic behind the moves we did see. And, and we're going to see over the next couple of weeks how uh, those decisions play out and how those players look on their new teams. And so, uh, yeah, there's something to look forward to there. Um if you enjoy the show and you want to help us out, you can do so by going and leaving a quick little rating and review. Uh, each one is greatly appreciated. It is super easy to do. It only takes a minute of your time and it goes a long way towards helping us out. So uh, just go click the five stars. And if you've got time and you really want to uh, go above and beyond, you can leave a quick little note there about what you enjoy about the show and why you recommend people check it out. And uh, many of you have done so already. And I, like I said, I greatly appreciate it. And uh, thank you in advance to those of you that are going to do so. Um, if you want more of my work, you can go subscribe to EP Ringside, where I'm writing uh, once a week at least, uh, sometimes more doing a bunch of deep dives there in written form, uh, similar to what we do here on the podcast. So um, if you wanted to give it a, a try, you can use the promo code ILOVEP, all caps, and that'll give you two free months off of an annual subscription. And there's a bunch of great young writers on that site. We are cranking out uh, new content there daily. And uh, yeah, if you enjoy this podcast, I imagine it will be up your alley. So you won't regret it. Um, anyways, uh, that's going to be it for today's show. We're going to be back next week to close out April with another show. And then we're, uh, the calendar is turning to May. We are gearing up for the playoffs. I am really excited because that I feel like is when this podcast is able to shine because we can really get into the nerdy X's and O's of each matchup and break it down. And we're going to be doing our, uh, playoff previews and then and all that good stuff so really looking forward to that thanks for listening and we will be back soon the hockey pdo cast with dimitri filipovich follow on twitter at dim filipovich and on soundcloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey pdo cast